Hi, Chores! Welcome to Digest with Choo Choo's, a podcast exploring the influence of food on our soil, body, and soul. From regenerative farming to table rituals, let us embark on an Epicurean journey and meet captivating guests who invite meaning and purpose from field to fork. My name is Lea Sednawi, gourmand at heart, and your host. I believe that chewing or living well is choosing. Let's find out how, together, get comfortable and happy listening. Hi, Tahiche. It's really great to have you on Digest with Choo Choo's. I'm really pleased to have you. Hello, Leah. It's amazing. Thank you so much for having me. And hello, everyone. That is me. Yay. <laughs> so we met almost five years ago now, and we've kept in touch in practice and in friendship since. Your journey into yoga is profound. You share a practice that is very intimate. It's well-grounded into spirituality. And to set the tone to our chat today, I would love to introduce you and talk about your journey so that our audience can get to know you better and what you do. Can you tell us a bit about where you're from? Where did you grow up? So I am originally from the Canary Islands, Gran Canaria, Spain. And I grew up partially in Rishikesh, India, and also in the Canaries. Great. And can you, how old were you when you were in Rishikesh? So basically, uh, my dad was one of these hippie, <laughs> hippie dads that really wanted to explore spirituality. He was extremely good with languages and the Indian population in the Canaries by then was huge. And with that also they brought their influences, religion, philosophy, which my dad found fascinating. So basically what happened is that he get to know more and decided to travel to India where he met this guru and his passion about all these subjects went so, so far that actually the whole family moved to oh, wow. live in an ashram with the guru himself and many other people that used to go there to train as teachers basically meditation teachers. So that was my first approach to yoga, which I have to thank my dad for. Hmm. Would you say that your dad was your mentor? Mm, no, no, he wasn't my mentor. I think the guru he found for himself became my mentor. Okay. So I love to say that I was raised by saints which is actually true. And um, yeah, I didn't grow up in a traditional environment of mom, dad, grandparent. Instead, I was kind of raised in a community of people that were looking for, you know, their own paths in spirituality. So I think I was incredibly lucky that my dad was curious about this path so actually made it very easy for me and gave me access to gurus and to teachers, spiritual teachers that otherwise I would have never known about. So 
In these terms, my dad's guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, was my guru as well. But not only him, but also people who somehow gathered around him. Very special people that I, you know, I keep like very close to my heart. And so how long did you stay there? Uh, Initially, it was three years since I was nine. So basically, I guess that when you start kind of, yeah, forming a person, but after that, my life was from then, like going in and out India all the time. So my own journey started when I actually left India and I realized that I wanted to come back that I really wanted to continue my training. I really wanted to continue learning. So yes, initially it was only three years during my childhood. But at the end, I've spent so much time there, as much as I could. Great. And so where did you evolve from there? Where did you go? So at one point, my dad, when I was... 13, he was sent to Seychelles Islands to open another ashram there. And at that point, I returned to Gran Canaria to live with my mom. And uh, I continued doing the same rituals, the same teachings that I received in Rishikesh in my life in Gran Canaria, which was quite eccentric. I suppose that for people who didn't go through the same experience, uh, it might have seemed extremely eccentric. But yeah, at one point I was just growing up with all this phenomenal experience that I've had. And, And then I got back to India when I was 15. And that's probably when my real training as a teacher myself started. So um, soon after I gave my first class in the ashram, I never really wanted to be a yoga instructor or a meditation teacher myself. But I was very, really, yeah, that wasn't my inclination whatsoever. What I wanted to do was to learn. I was fascinated. And of course, I was given this amazing opportunity from learning from these amazing masters. So I was always hungry for more. And and actually, I somehow managed to organize my life around being able to come back to India as much as I could. I had several jobs, like I was working as a model. I used to buy beautiful pashminas, silks, and jewelry. So I could actually have the freedom to come and go as I pleased. That was my main interest, getting back to the source. And so after this day, when you were 15 in Rishikesh again, mm-hmm. so when did you come back towards the West and... Where did you go? In my life, I've been a little bit of a nomad. So I have been living in so many places. By then, when I was in India, I was 15. I was probably like six months or so. Then I had to go back to Gran Canaria. 
And after that, after I was 18, was the real pilgrimage, if you want, kind of finding the way to come back and also discover the world because I've been living in different countries. I've been living in, well, many different places in Spain, not only in my tiny island, but also Madrid, many years. Barcelona, also Portugal, as well, Amsterdam, and now London. Was it difficult for you to go back? To come back to the Western civilization? Yes, Yes, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I probably had a dreamy childhood because my time in India, I... It's very clear for me when I first went with my family, with my whole family, my parents, my brother and my sister. As a kid, suddenly not having to join like the traditional nursery and then school, whatever, but instead being in a place where everybody is so inclined to search for joy and creativity and kind of magic that's what it was really lots of games lots of conversations yeah I think I got addicted to this amazing freedom and of course I didn't like it when I had to come back to Gran Canaria I didn't like it at all. I didn't like the school. You know, I was in Rishikesh barefoot all the time, playing in the Ganges, and suddenly I had to go to school and tie my hair and, uh, and wear a uniform. No, I didn't like any of that. And, you know, slowly I got to learn to love both in the same way that we find balance through yoga in our own nature, our polarities I think at one point I just fell in love as well with these two completely opposite aspects right Mm -hmm. magic freedom and exploration in India and then probably whatever I was living in Europe was where I put into action all the teachings that I have received in Rishikesh yeah wonderful Mm -hmm. How old were you when you started teaching? So my first class was when I was 15. That was the first class I ever taught. (laughs) Of course, it was more kind of a game. It wasn't a strict at all. It was just an explosion of creativity, although very traditional as well, but very permissive. And, can, you, um, can you tell us more about that? The creativeness, the permissiveness, uh, this approach? The ashram where I grew up was about all these things. Creativity was something that was really appreciated by everybody. And uh, art in all its forms. Not only kids, there were not many kids in the ashram. But basically, everybody that was there at that point was learning what they had learned in their adult lives. There was like this feeling of wanting to get back to innocence, you know, play, singing, dancing, 
No one needed to do things in a perfect way. Everything was kind of accepted, heard, and celebrated. Yeah, that's the approach that I remember, and that's the reason why I actually allowed myself to do this when I was 15, which is something that I still try to keep in my practice, not only in my personal practice, but also when I'm teaching, like there's no right or wrong. We don't need to be perfect. We just need to allow ourselves to feel completely and to just allow us to, to share that little voice in our brains that say, oh no, you shouldn't do this. That's not allowed or that's not the way it should be because that would actually end all the fun. Of course. It's so interesting because today living in, in the West and big cities like here, we're, if you're into self-help or introspection, psychoanalysis, you are bombarded with tips for a healthy lifestyle and you have all these encouragements to include play in your life or listen to yourself and all these things that sure are essential from a young age in your upbringing, but they become like a, a list of things that you must include in your everyday that it's a bit, there's something anti-natural about it, you know, when you read about it. Less spontaneity, you know? Yeah, I think that's part of the process of and learning. Yeah. For me, when we are children, we are so in contact with magic in life. And everything is possible. And you can be in a tiny little garden and imagine that you are in a massive forest. And for you, that is true. And we have this capacity of manifesting and to be in touch with the elements and with our unconscious mind and with our wild self. And I do think that's really important and that we really need to come back to it, to that innocence, to that freedom. And of course, it's easier, it's easier saying than doing because we are so programmed, okay. We're full of patterns and rules. And yeah, absolutely. But still, I think we can all remember when we were little. And somehow you can put yourself in that little self that you were ages ago, if you really connect with that. And uh, it's something that is possible for absolutely everybody. If you've been a child, you can still connect with everything that that meant. Wow. It's not always very easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah would be needed though yeah going back to your beautiful practice what are the key takeaways today with all of your experience that you want to transmit to your students i would say that we shouldn't forget yoga is for liberation and that is such a wonderful world liberation from absolutely everything not only what comes given by being an adult in this society, in this time on earth, but also liberation from 
our inner selves. Uh, liberation from what we want to identify with, liberation from the patterns we've been using over, liberation from suffering, liberation from unnecessary thinking or doing. So liberation is the ultimate freedom. That is my goal, really. When I'm about to teach a class, that's what I keep Online, that's what my aim is, that's what my force is. Yeah, Beautiful. liberation. Yeah, thank you. There definitely is a correlation between the body and the mind in yoga, and it leads me to some more questions. Uh, <laughs> look at how yoga embraces force with grace and gratitude. So The practice of yoga unravels the sensorial and the conscious body, and it heightens the unconscious and the emotive. There's this correlation we're just talking about. I was reading about this psychiatrist, Mark Epstein, who is also a practitioner of Buddhism. And he says, there exists in most of us the desire to be free from the pressure of our emotions. We assume that the only way to be free of suffering is to be completely rid of it. And by this, he encourages us not to deny or surpass our affect in meditation, but to allow them to surface, to fully witness them through the practice of mindfulness. And he says, this longing for a realm of emotional quiescence has had an important impact on the way we practice Buddhism. This desire to destroy the offending emotions is also one that is very common in people seeking psychotherapy. So I would like to take a step back and talk about our experience together during the pandemic. Amid the worldly chaos, the panic, you pursued our live group classes online, grounding through the chakras, focusing on the health of our hearts, of our lungs, and inviting clarity to our minds. Truly, you were able to harness a sense of connection through the screen, and that was really incredible. While you were holding our energy and nurturing our well-being during this period, can you share with us how you personally navigated it and what it taught you? Through the pandemic times, I happened to be on my own for the first time in many years. And that's when I thought, okay, so everything that I've been learning and everything that I've been teaching, everything, all of that, it was about this very moment. Now is when I need to use this more than ever. Now is when I really want to test it, to really let it guide me fully. Now that we couldn't leave our houses, Myself, I was just here at home with my pets. I was lucky enough to have my little garden so I could just sit down and see the trees and enjoy the sunshine because it was quite sunny, I remember. But yeah, I actually thought that was the moment where I could actually live this truth fully without anything else, without having to do anything else but just completely surrendering to practice. So for me, it was quite amazing. It was an amazing opportunity to fully embody what I was teaching. Mm. To be in the present. 
which is absolutely. the essence of yoga as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the truth is that being a yoga teacher in London, that means that you need to be running around, <laughs> running around from class to class. And you don't have much time for yourself. You need to really find the time very early in the morning or last thing in the evening before you go to bed to actually connect with your own practice, your own spiritual practice, your sadhana. And suddenly having all that time for myself was like, wow, now it's like, yeah, there's nothing else to do. Now you can really sink in. Of course, what was happening in the world was truly awful and scary and surreal and everything at the same time. But I have to say that personally for me, it gave me the space and the time to reconnect with myself in a way that it was so incredibly generous. Mm. And so in turning inwards, what changed for you? from a habitual or spiritual standpoint? What did you change? The whole time was a big change for me for many things because my personal family situation changed drastically. My career changed drastically from one day to the next. Uh, Yeah, many things changed all at once. So it gave me more space and more clarity and to examine my feelings which didn't necessarily have to be super calm and relaxed no I wasn't calm and relaxed at all times but it gave me the opportunity to really embrace each one of my emotions and feelings and thoughts as if each one of them was my only baby Mm. and They depended on me to really nurture them and let them grow. So that's exactly what I did. And it was, it was so, it was so amazing. It was so fulfilling. And I think it made me be more compassionate with myself. Mm. And of course, then with others. We discussed in a previous private conversation how the pandemic made us observe and value the way we carry ourselves actually it's something you said spelt out the way we carry ourselves and that really stayed with me but ultimately how we care for ourselves so carry and care this time has allowed you to rediscover the way we nourish with intent and the importance of connecting with the elements I know your garden has a very important place for you in your heart Um, And so what is the importance of prana, the cosmic energy in this notion of self-care for you? I mean, prana is the life force energy that is present in absolutely everything. And of course, the way we actually absorb this prana is through the breath, but also the sunshine and also the food. And I would go beyond that and would say that also the way we absorb prana is also through art. So actually just, I don't know, going, watching a beautiful painting or reading poetry or or drawing a little thing or creating something or 
cooking a meal. All of that is art. They are actually art. And, and that creates prana, makes us feel alive, elevates the spirit. So over that time, when we had so much time in our hands, for me, it was really important to nurture myself with things that really would keep me in that high vibration instead of just being dull here at home, looking at my walls and complaining about things that were happening to all of us. Instead, turning towards things that would make me feel nurtured, safe, happy would be like the solution for me. And that includes eating amazing food, preferably that I've created from the seeds in my own garden. So yes, celebrating little thing. And yes, the, the prana was everything. I remember these mornings at the beginning of the lockdown. So my body was still used to wake up really early as when I was working and, and teaching from the very early mornings. So I remember just waking up by 6, 6.30 and sitting outside in my garden with a little tea and watching just the trees, the birds, the sunshine, just playing with the branches of the trees. All of that actually elevates the prana, facilitates the absorption of prana, the connection with the elements in a conscious way. I mean, of course, you can just walk alongside a park and still have your hands in your pockets and the chin tucking into your chest and be thinking about your problems or whatever is overwhelming you. But when you bring consciousness and you open your eyes and you observe what is around you, all that beauty, and you allow yourself to really connect in a very deep level with all of that, that is when you are absorbing prana. Mm. You can sit down in a restaurant and have the most amazing meal. And that prana wants to be absorbed. I mean, that want to be part of you, that everything in the world wants to fulfill a purpose. And the prana is not different. The prana that is around us wants to be seen, wants to be absorbed, wants to be celebrated. So, yeah, prana, prana plays a big role, not only in my spiritual practice, but actually I'm going to say that everything is in a spiritual practice. Absolutely everything is in a spiritual practice. Chatting with someone, having someone, having a shower, swimming, drawing, going to the museum, admiring Being in the moments of art. Exactly. Doing it mindfully. Yeah. Yeah. Attention. That's what creates the miracle. Yes. Definitely. So a bit of a foodie question. <laughs> Ooh yes so what foods make you happy i'm going to say that i appreciate food made with love so if someone cooks something for me that for me is a sacrament the result of that cooking is for me is a sacrament for me is really actually if i was eating your love and of course 
foods that are associated with happy memories. For example, I don't know, my grandma used to boil these eggs for me, but I never liked to eat the exterior. I was a very spoiled little girl, now that I think so. So yeah, just foods that bring me happy memories from my childhood, but basically things that other people have cooked with love. For example, I have to say that coffee, and of course coffee is a big spirit, but the coffee that my partner brings me to bed every morning, that's one of my favorite meals. I consider that a meal because I don't have any other breakfast. So that is the full breakfast for me. That is really full of love. I don't know anything that someone would cook for me, but I prefer simple food. I prefer something that is not very elaborated. Simple food made with love. That's did, my did favorite. Did you say, wonderful. Did you say coffee has a big spirit? Absolutely. Yes, yes. The coffee is a spirit itself. I mean, every single element has a spirit. I don't think that they are just objects that happen to grow up for you to eat them. No, I think that Mother Earth is a life, is a mother, is the divine mother. Everything that comes from her has their own spirit, for sure. And the coffee one is particularly powerful. It's really powerful. I actually had the opportunity to notice this myself because I decided to do a little detox and I didn't miss anything at all except my coffee. <laughs> I was really tired. And actually, when you drink your coffee in a certain ceremonial way, and you really give yourself the time to notice the effect, the impact it makes in your mind and in your body, then it's when you really kind of communicate with this spirit. And it's an ally as it is anything else, as my beautiful red tomatoes that I grow in my garden are, or as my beautiful verbae. Absolutely everything is alive. Have you ever done the Ayurvedic diet or practiced yes. it? Yes, yes. So basically, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's incredibly interesting. I was learning Ayurveda myself for a period of time, but I decided that it was way too complex for me to ever really be a good therapist. It's just, it's incredible how these wise people actually knew our connection with the elements to the point that they decided that we are actually a mixture of these elements ourselves and that there's always going to be a dominant one and another two that won't be so strong and they mm. need to be balanced somehow. So I find it incredibly fascinating. I have actually tried it myself in many occasions and I know that is something that really works. But I also consider that it's quite tricky to follow. I am not very ruly. Ruly. Ruly? Can you say I'm yes. not very ruly? Yes. 
Yes. I am quite unruly. I am quite wild. So great. <laughs> actually, when you try to do it that way, is basically your nature wants to wants you to read the things that, that are in your dominant dosha. But instead, if you want to balance them out, you need to have the other two, which yes. sometimes you don't like, you don't want to. So I find it very tricky. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So do you believe that certain foods or diets heal and favor our Kundalini towards a spiritual ascension? Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Yes. I mean, I can't imagine... Even if you don't do the Ayurvedic diet. No, no. Even if you don't do the Ayurvedic, again, you don't need to do perfect. You just need to do, you know, the best you can. But mm. yes, of course, I think that the food we eat has an impact in the person we are. Because actually, you know, the yoga tradition tells us that we are actually this essence, this surrounded by these layers of different containers, let's say. So the most external layer would be the one that we can actually pinch. And that is actually formed out of food. What we eat, we usually identify so much with the part of ourselves that we can see. So my arm, my hand, I look at myself in the mirror, that's me. And that is formed out of food. But again, it's only a layer that surrounds the soul because the soul needs to, in order to be incarnated, in order to have this earthy experience, needs to have most kind of physical form. We need the, this vessel. But the first layer is created out of food. So that should make us believe that we need to pay way more attention to what we are actually creating this skin, tissues, nerves, et cetera, et cetera, from. So I can't imagine that a person that, for example, this is going to sound extreme, but a person that survives out of crisps and McDonald's, that has an impact. I don't think that having the super poor and non-pranic diet is going to help you in this self-inquire of who am I, what am I for? Of course not. We need to, we really need to eat. It distances you from the earth, from the source. Yeah, I think pranic elements, the more simple, Whole the more foods. pranic. Yes. That's what we usually do. Also, when we are doing meditation, especially vipassana, we tend to avoid certain elements, like for example, onion, garlic, exactly for the same reason I was talking about before, because everything has a spirit and certain spirits want to play and they like to play with your mind. So you wouldn't have certain spices, you would try to avoid certain elements when you want to meditate and sit down and be still. Mm. Right. So yes, absolutely. We are form of food. Yes. That's the part of you that I'm seeing now on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Tasty. Tasty. <laughs> Let's turn to your practice a little bit. You often speak about you practice Hatha Yoga broadly. 
Yes. You've spoken about tantric traditions a lot. And you tell us more about the philosophies that influence you and that you practice. Basically, I practice and teach a very traditional style of Hatha yoga. So Ha means sun and Ta means moon. So what we are trying to achieve here is the union of legendary lovers, our masculine, our feminine. So by doing so, we are using the body. That is what makes everything tantric because it was only in the tantric times when cities realized that they didn't need to deny the body, but rather the opposite, we needed to celebrate the body. Tantra is basically, it's another word for magic. It's the most esoteric part of side of yoga and has to do with sorcery, has to do with rituals. So this is what I practice myself. My practice is my offering. It's the offering of my body towards something that is way bigger than what we can achieve with our senses. Mm. So for me, it's not about stretching one side and then the other side has nothing to do with that. I am the least sportive person in the world. I don't like sports. <laughs> Nobody's here to judge you, Tate. I am super lazy. Uh, but instead, I think of yoga and tantra as this communion of all my senses where, yeah, where everything that I'm doing is a symbol that kind of makes me communicate with something that is everywhere and that belongs to everybody. That's so that's my approach. And I have my little rituals. I like to practice in front of a little altar, depending on what I'm trying to achieve. I don't always have a purpose. Very often I just sit there and allow things to happen. But I like to light candles. I love music, so I try to make it a beautiful sensorial experience. That is in my personal practice, but the way I teach, I just allow my intuition to tell me what is needed. If I don't have the chance to hear it from my students, I give them the tools to connect with themselves. That's all I do in a very traditional way but again also full of game and self-exploration where everything is allowed yeah the way you were brought up yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly it's yeah. beautiful so you largely focus on conducting the prana through the chakras during our practices to the heart energy you embrace shakti often through the Kriyas, if I'm not wrong, and the, you call into the div divine feminine. What does this heart energy mean to you and how does reinforcing it impact our vibration? Hugely, mm. because in the chakra systems, the heart is the one that is in the very center. And uh, that means that the lower chakras actually have a mission, are the ones that are closer to Mother Earth, are the ones that are more in connection with me. Basically, 
the things that we need in order to survive. And from the heart upwards, there are the organs of the spirit. So everything is connected with Father Sky, aspirations, intuitions, mm. ideals, values. So the heart, I believe, I actually learned from very early age that the heart is actually a magnet. The heart is the real door for absolutely everything. And the currency mm. is love. It's nothing else but that. Mm. We tend to forget when things are so incredibly easy. So when I am doing certain sequence in our yoga practices, always my instinct is to allow the prana to flow from certain energy centers with the idea of always let it flow through the heart out. Because it's the only way we can project the essence of who we really are. And also we're going to attract the life we really were supposed to live that way. We're never going to create a better world from our brains only or from our feet. It's the heart that has this kind of value is the one that has this quality of attracting and transforming things and connecting absolutely mm. yeah we all deserve to live an amazing life and i think that we can only do that when we open our hearts and the heart opened means that you consciously have gone through the drains of your being instead of just bypassing certain awful emotions, dense emotions, you know, going deeper into them like they are actually a desire of your soul as well to be expressed and embraced. And that suddenly become supportive. So that's what I usually do. So I tend to start from the lower chakra. I allow the students, the yogis, to actually experience the discomfort. <laughs> and knowing that a little bit of discomfort is going to pay off with freedom. And then slowly try to move the awareness towards the heart. And sometimes it's the other way around when I notice that people are too much in their minds. So I would start on the upper chakras and then move that energy down into the heart. But it's always this inner journey of the prana, healing, activating, and, and opening. Because... Yeah. Yeah, right. because usually tend to, our fears tend to make us believe in self-isolation. So what happened to us during the pandemic times is not very different to what we do to ourselves when we think that we are the only ones that suffer from this and that and the other. So we actually have manifested in a global way, the fears that we were feeling in our little universes. That's why I think that this is an amazing time for us or to, in a collective way, 
heal. But of course, you need to do the work individually. Of course. Um, sometimes that can be, depending on your past experience, that can be quite uncomfortable. But if it doesn't transform you, it is a yoga. Wow, that's very powerful. So for people who have a hard time connecting with their authentic selves and opening up and surrendering, do you have, I hate these kinds of questions, but I will ask anyway, do you have three tips to share? Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Three tips for a person? No, but do you have tips or advice to accept to be more vulnerable to consider to invite this softer energy and start the work i don't think this is something that can be forced and you know so many times i've had students that love my sessions and have tried to involve another friend that they think that maybe might be really in need of this and that person you know is going to be a no so i don't think these things can be forced at all either you are in this self-inquire or you're not either you allow another person to guide you or you don't either you know would kind of change your habits into more healthy ones or not. Why? Because some of, the, some of us have, you know, more resistance than others or because some people really feel that they are themselves when they really identify with a certain way of being. So there's something that I love to do and is just looking at myself in the mirror and saying, this is not me. This is not me. (laughs) What is me? I'm just a bunch of molecules that are always changing, ever changing, all the time. Who knows what the hell is going on in there? So I like this idea of nothing is fixed. Nothing is the way, everything is always changing. And at least you identify yourself with certain personality, religion, uh, status, the more you're open for miracles. But I understand that mm, this is something that either happens or it doesn't. And there's nothing you can do to force it in another person, unfortunately. Everybody have their own process and that's all right. Yeah. What makes you feel fulfilled and willing to pursue your practice? Of course, when people tell me that this practice has really meant something for them in their lives, that it has become like a little tool that they can keep in their little toolbox, that makes me happy knowing that You know, that somehow a person can go from feeling down to actually practice 
or do a little meditation and then feeling way better. That, of course, is incredibly rewarding. Mm. And that is what makes me continue in the yoga field. Although I don't identify myself as a yoga teacher according to Instagram and the trendy yoga. Yeah, that's what makes me continue. Yeah. And so following up on this and also our just previous conversation about how we surrender to the practice and how we get more connected to our authentic self, I want to talk about the future and your (laughs) manifestation course. So Ah. developing a manifestation course that empowers us. I haven't tried it yet, but that would empower your students to connect with themselves, their true personal beliefs, and bring their thoughts or their desires into action. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Can you tell us more about it? Ah, uh, This is something that started as an experiment during the pandemic times. For some reason, one of my friends asked me to connect with this person that I don't know why thought that I might be able to teach her certain rituals. And anyways, the thing is that I found myself teaching a little group of people this little course of magic. So I don't really call it manifestation course because although the goal of the course itself is to manifest something in life. It doesn't matter if it's something very simple or something very difficult. But the thing is, this course is more about writing your own grimoire. That is exactly what it is. So basically, it's about creating your own book of shadows, including different techniques and different rituals where Everybody is going to not only take notes in the most traditional way, handwriting in their journal, but also they're going to be practicing every single thing that I teach. And that creates such a beautiful, fun vibe. And most importantly, it really creates big changes. Makes us reconnect in a different way and Also, for people who are interested in magic and manifesting things, they can actually try it. Not only read about it, not only dreaming about it, but trying it themselves. And also witness how the other people in the group are doing it as well. So they have this feedback from others. So I think it's a very beautiful way of learning in community. And most importantly, it really works. It really makes everybody feel more positive. And and yeah, it's kind of getting back again, getting back to childhood when you actually thought that everything was possible. Of course, these courses include, there is a fun part, but like working with the moon phase and different spells and different rituals. 
but also there's one of the tools that is the most important maybe, which is shadow work. So basically what we do is we take care of all those fears that live in the lower chakras and we really need to be brave enough to look at them in the eyes and in a very shameless way, in a very cheeky way also. And that makes us realize that there's nothing right or wrong. So this is the little course that I am organizing since the pandemic times. It's something that at the beginning I wasn't very sure about, but I can say that it's given me so much joy seeing how people that have this curiosity. It's been really amazing seeing they have changed in their lives. Like everything is here for us to achieve. An amazing partner, you know, a fulfilling job, endless creativity, amazing help. So this is actually a little course about empowering people to follow their dreams and to really go for it. And knowing that you're not taking away anything from anyone else, there's plenty for absolutely everybody. And the techniques are so incredibly sweet and fun and really connect you with the elements, really make you feel embodying these elements in you, water, mm. fire. So yes, it's been my past as well. It's not only my future, but it's been my past over the pandemic times. And it's something that I'm going to keep on putting more and more energy into. So it where do we fun. find you? That's ah. my next question. <laughs> Yoga or magic? I guess the easiest way to find me is on Instagram and my yoga account which is called soulful hatha and i'm not very present on instagram i'm afraid i'm afraid not in the professional account i use it more just to share whatever life brings me uh yeah that's the best way to connect with me at the moment because as i said i'm not promoting these courses whatsoever because it's something that i do with very few people, only four people per group, so they can actually engage within each other and they can actually really find that support in this very small container and I can actually really nurture the uniqueness of each one of the students. It's a course that lasts three months and, uh, and it goes really deep. Basically, you create your own grimoire with all the tools that you actually need to have a magical life, practical magical life that actually changed your life and the lives of the ones that surround you for the better. Wow, incredible. Basically making a magnet out of your heart. So it's the same principle that I use for the yoga practice. Mm, great. I can't wait to try them. <laughs> uh -huh. Soon, soon. I'll ask you the last question that I ask everyone to close the podcast episode. As you know, the podcast is called Digest with Choo Choose, and it's literal but also figurative. So, what do you or do you not digest in food or life? Ooh. <sighs> 
really uh, over-processed stuff in both food and life. You don't digest? You don't like No, I don't. Yeah. I like simple things, natural things, very fresh things. So I would never eat something that has been processed and frozen and taken away. And in the same way in life, I like the freshness. I like something that is fresh, that is new, that is full of life. Natural. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tahiche. It's been a very insightful conversation. I'm so pleased to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You chew, you choose. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, give it a like and subscribe for more delicious content to digest. <laughs>